Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. I have been looking forward to this day for about six months now. That's when um, myself and three other pastors of churches that we teamed together with here in Southern California first met, began talking about this message series and how we might like to develop it. And um, so I'm excited that this day is finally here. The important endeavors of life usually require a team effort. It takes more than one person to really accomplish important things. Uh, for example, if you want to raise children, it's best done in a team called family. And if you want to succeed in your career, you've probably learned by now that you, you need to figure out how to work with others. You need to figure out how to team together to accomplish something that's bigger than just yourself. And as we're going to be talking about in this series, if you want to make an eternal impact with your life, you're going to have to join God's team and become a part of what He is doing. And that's, that's so important because we have been created not just, of course, to take up space and consume resources and mark time, but to play an important role in what God is doing in this world, in the larger work of God. And if we don't end up doing our part, if we never discover what our part is or we just don't put the effort in to do our part, then God's work, of course, will go on without us. But we're the ones that are going to lose. We're the ones that will not be able to have the chance to do with our life what we were created to do, to be a part of what we were created to be a part of. Now, the work of God advances not as individuals go out and do good deeds. That's fine, but that's not how the work of God advances. The work of God advances as we team together to do God's work. So the question is, how do you join God's team? I mean, wh where do you sign up? It's God's team. Where is the recruiting center for God's team? Can you just show up? Well, today we're going to address the three questions that come to the surface whenever you seriously consider, how, how can I team in what God is doing in this world? We're going to talk about the first question, how do you become qualified? Second question is, how do you make a contribution? And the last question is, what is the mission? What are we trying to accomplish as a team? So let's look at these in order. First one is the qualification question. How do you become qualified to be on God's team? And the answer, the short answer is, become a Christ follower. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 12, a book in the New Testament portion of the Bible, verses 3 through 5. It says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So we don't become a part of God's team. We're not qualified to be on God's team just by thinking that we are. In fact, this is an interesting uh, way to start a series on teaming together by saying, now be sure you're not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. But that's the very reason why we need a team. If we think of ourselves soberly, honestly, we realize that we have limitations. And it's only as we take our unique abilities and gifts, strengths and weaknesses, and we team together with other people who, like us, but have different gifts and different strengths and weaknesses, that we're able to accomplish much, much more. So if we stop to think about ourselves in sober judgment, we realize that we lack the moral qualifications to join God's team. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware of the fact the World Series got underway this past Tuesday, and I'm going to irritate all the Angel fans here, but the World Series did get underway on Tuesday. And I, I personally I don't watch a lot of um, baseball during the year, um, so many baseball games. They're fun when I go to see them, but yeah, I watch a lot on TV. But 
when it comes to the playoffs, especially the World Series, I really love watching that. And as I've watched uh, the games in the playoffs and now a few in the World Series, I often think, how amazing must it be to play on a team at that level? I mean, that's just got to be a a tremendous thrill. Now, I've been able to get a seat fairly close to the action of professional sports just a handful of times. Um, And whenever I get a chance to be close to the field of play or the court or the rink, one of the things that stands out to me in every one of those experiences is the speed at which the game is played. I mean, when you watch on TV or you watch from the nosebleed seats, as I more often get to watch from, you really can't get a sense of the athletic ability and the speed and skill that's required to play these professional games at the level of play that they do. Now, I grew up playing hockey on a frozen pond behind our house in Canada. So hockey's my sport. And like most kids in Canada, I had dreams of playing in the NHL. So why didn't I? You know why, right? There was this big performance gap. I mean, if I were to describe it this way, the skill level that I play hockey at, especially now, is kind of way over here. And if you ever get close to NHL hockey action, the skill level that they play is, well, the stage can't really, it's way over here. So the gap between my performance and professional athletic performance is significant. That's why no team has ever drafted me. They don't know anything about me. It doesn't matter how much I dreamed of being a hockey player because contrary to what they say, you don't always get what you dream for. I dreamed of being a hockey player, and I am not and will never be a hockey player. And the reason is the performance gap. So I've settled for the next best thing. I'm a hockey fan. What that means is I go to games when I can, and as a spectator, I cheer on my team. But it's my performance gap that keeps me in the stands. Now, hockey is not the only performance gap in my life. I have a moral performance gap as well. What I mean by that is my whole life, uh, I've been aware of the fact that uh, I should be doing better. And I know this because a week doesn't go by where I don't have several thoughts that fall in line like, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say this? Or I should have done it this way. Or I should have noticed that in this person's life. Or I should have said it differently. It just goes on, this conversation. And I know that this plays in your head too. Because a common human experience is we know that we should be performing at this level, but we keep falling short of whatever standards are that we think we should be performing at. So my moral performance, again, I would say would be over here. Now, before you start shaking your head at me, you're over here with me, okay? (laughs) Now, you may be a little worse than me or maybe a little better than me, but we're all hanging out in this area of the stage. We're all aware of this together. And when you look even inside your own heart at the standard of moral performance, or more specifically, if you read what God says in the pages of the Bible, we should be over here. And it's this gap that we can't ever seem to cross that keeps so many people off God's team. Because they, they just think that, well, the most I can do is, is cheer for God. I can be a fan. I can agree. I can really want what God wants to advance. But I, I'm, I'm stuck over here. I, I could never really play a significant role in what God is doing in the world. I mean, look at me. I've got this moral performance gap. So if we're willing to be honest 
about ourselves and think soberly about our life, it's obvious that none of us are qualified to be on God's team. So how do we ever have a chance to be on his team? Do we just try harder? Do we just really work as hard as we can to move this needle as far as we can? Well, that's good. But I'm telling you that no one has ever been able to cross the gap with their own effort. None of us are good enough. Again, we're better or worse, but we're not this good. And so in Luke chapter 7, we read of a, of a dinner <clears throat> that Jesus was invited to by the top moral performers of his day. If, if, the, if you lived in that day and you were to say, who, who, is the, the, who are the best people morally in the day? Y- you would point to this collection of people that um, hosted Jesus to this dinner. And in the middle of the meal, a woman who, as it says in the page of the scripture, was a known sinner. What that probably means is she was a prostitute. She crashed the event. She shows up, uninvited, unannounced. And it was suddenly awkward. It would be like me crashing the Dodgers clubhouse during the World Series, you know. If I could get through security, which I'm sure I couldn't, but if I could and I just suddenly showed up, what would happen? What are you doing here? I'm not qualified. I have no right to be there. I'd be thrown out instantly. And that was kind of the the thought as this woman crashed this event of the moral top performers of the day. And she realized she had no right to be there. They knew she had no right to be there. And so she took a position behind Jesus, probably just to shield uh, herself from all of the stares and glares and probably comments that were coming her way. And as she stood behind Jesus, she began crying. And the reason she was crying, of course, was because of her life of sin. The purpose behind her visit was she had heard that Jesus can forgive sins and she was hoping that maybe, just maybe, there was something to this Jesus. And so she was there to see if there was any hope for her, any hope for her future. And in the, in the moment of the glares and the stares, and in the presence of Jesus, she just breaks down and starts crying. And she doesn't just tear up. She starts sobbing. In fact, she cries so much that she started to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. That is a lot of tears. Now, I've had some pretty sad moments in my life, and I've cried, and I've seen others cry. But I've never seen anyone cry enough to wash somebody's feet with their tears. I mean, this, this woman was, she was broken. And so the host of this event protested that Jesus allowed this woman to say. I mean, Jesus was the honored guest. If he had just immediately dismissed her, then everyone would have taken action. But Jesus wasn't dismissing her at all. And so they turned and accused Jesus of not being who he said he was. He claimed to be God in flesh. He claimed to be the Messiah. And if he is either of those or both of those, Clearly, he would know who this is. Everybody knows who this is, and he would take action. If he was representing God's holy standard, he would take action against this woman and throw her out. But he's not doing that, and so they accuse Jesus of of being a fraud. Jesus doesn't even address them initially. This is what he says to the woman in Luke 7, verse 48 through 50. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine what those words must have sounded like to someone who is crying over their sin at that level. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
Jesus answered or said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who is this? What they're realizing is only God can forgive sins. Only God can cover this gap. And Jesus was, had claimed and was continuing to claim that he was, in fact, God in flesh. They just didn't agree with that. But he was. And so, like this woman, we move from this side of the stage to this side of the moral stage. Not when we finally get good enough to cover this gap. That's never going to happen. But when we do exactly what she did, not cry the same amount of tears, but we come to the point in our life where we bow before Jesus Christ and seek his forgiveness. And our sins are forgiven. And we are transported to this side of the stage. We become his followers. It's not just a moment in time. It's a moment that marks a change in direction. Not a change in perfection, but a change in direction. This is called in the New Testament being in Christ. The passage we read in Romans 12 has this phrase, in Christ. You can find it sprinkled throughout the New Testament. The idea, basically, of being in Christ is that his moral stat sheet covers over our moral stat sheet. You don't see our moral stat sheet, which is still over here. We now see the perfect moral stat sheet of Christ covering over our imperfect moral stat sheet. Now, how does that occur? It's a gift. Notice that two gifts are mentioned in these verses that I read in Romans chapter 12. The first gift is a gift of grace. This is mentioned at the very beginning of what I read. It simply starts out by, for by the grace given me. Before anything else is said, I want you to understand, I have been a recipient of God's grace. God's grace is his power applied to our sin, and it shows up in two specific ways. First, forgiveness. Secondly, help to change. God's grace. The second gift is faith. Later in the passage, it says, in accordance with the measure of faith, God has given you. Faith, basically, is the ability to see the offer of God's grace for what it is and accept it. God never forces us to make any decision that we don't freely make. And so if we don't even have the sense to see the offer of grace, we're never going to have the faith to accept it. And so not only does God give us grace, give us forgiveness, he gives us faith so that we can see and accept his grace. So what this means is God's team is not made up of the moral elite, the people who have somehow figured out how to crawl from this side of the stage to this side of the stage morally. Now, God's team is made up of those who have been offered God's grace in Christ, and in faith they have accepted it. That's what it means to be qualified to be on God's team. The second question is contribution. Once you're on the team, well, how do you make a contribution? I mean, fans watch and they cheer. Team members contribute. The way you contribute to God's team is you become a church member. Now, this is surprising to us because we live in a culture that's so individualistic. We think that we can just independently be on God's team, but it's a team. You don't just do anything independently. God's team is like any team. You don't join it generally. You join it specifically. For example, you can't play baseball as an at-large baseball player in the major leagues. I mean, you've got to be on a team. You can't just walk around with a bat and 
uh, major league looking uniform and call yourself a, a major a professional baseball player. No, you, you've got to be on a team. You've got to join a specific team. You've, you've got to play for the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Houston Astros, as it is in the World Series right now. So you can't play the game without first joining a team. And it's the same way with God's team. You know, a couple of years ago, I met someone here at Seabreeze who had just started coming to Seabreeze. And as we got talking and, you know, got to know each other a little bit, I asked a question that I often ask, and I said, so what do you do? And he told me he was a baseball player. Nobody's ever told me that. I mean, a lot of people play baseball, but if someone tells you they're a baseball player and answer that question, you know that they're doing this for money, probably. Well, that piqued my interest. So what do you think my first question was? Who? Who do you play for? What team? His answer was the New York Yankees. Really? The, the New York Yankees? He said, yeah, I'm playing AAA ball right now in their farm system, and I'm recovering from Tommy John surgery, so that's why I'm, I'm home for a while. Well, that was amazing. So what was my second question? What position, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been weird to walk away and say, oh, that's neat. I met someone from the New York Rangers. Or, no, New York Yankees. <laughs> Inside the mystery of the mind of a person speaking. My, our first date, my wife and I, was the New York Yankees play the Texas Rangers. So that's <laughs> probably where that came from. So the second question is, what position? Well, he was a catcher with the Yankees. About oh, a year after that, uh, I was with some friends at lunch, and we looked up at the screens, and he was getting his first start after surgery back behind the plate for the New York Yankees in Yankee Stadium. It's amazing. Now, I say this because this should be the same question when it comes to God's team. If someone says they're a Christian, what should the first and most obvious question be? Where? You can't be a Christian. I'm an at-large Christian. I just kind of hang around being Christian-y. <laughs> like, well, no, wh where? Where, where, do you, where do you participate as a Christian? What church are you a part of? And what should the second question be once they say what church they're a part of? Wow, what do you do? What position? And if a person isn't able, I'm not saying you should grill everyone with this question, but if, if you're not able to really answer that question, I'm not saying you're not a Christ follower. What I'm saying is you're not on the team. You may be on the disabled list. I don't know what, the, but you're not on the team. You're not being a part of God's team. You see, an individual Christian makes as much sense as an individual baseball player. You can't ba ba play baseball all by yourself, and we can't do God's work all by ourselves. On our own, we do not have the ability to do all that needs to be done. But if we join with others, and we do our part, and they do their part, well, then God's team moves forward. You know, the ultimate example for us, physical example of teamwork is our body. Your body, my body, is an amazing miracle of teamwork. Many, many diverse and different parts all coming together to keep us moving forward and alive. It's a miracle how it all works together as a team. And so in the New Testament, the body, our physical body, is used as an analogy of the team, of God's team, the church. 
Here's what it says, those two verses I already read, but let me read them again, verses 4 through 5 of Romans 12. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So the church is often referred to in the Bible as the body of Christ. It's how the work of Christ practically gets done here on earth now. It gets done not as we all do the same thing or we all do whatever we feel like doing, but as many people decide to work together in a specific place in a specific church and belong to one another. The idea is to really care about each other. I mean, we care about our bodies, right? If you injure your body, you don't just think, huh, well, that's not going to function very well. You think, ow, and you immediately rush to care for whatever was broken or cut or damaged. We belong to one another. And so those of us who are in Christ, we've made this decision to move from this side of the stage morally to this side of the stage, accept the grace in faith. We form one body. We're all part of a body. But the way this occurs practically is as people decide to belong to specific churches in specific locations where they live. You know, it's kind of like Major League Baseball. You join the league by joining a specific team. That's why these verses that I just read are addressed to Romans. None of us are Romans, probably. There may be a few Italians in the group, and maybe some of you live in Rome, but basically none of us are Romans. So these verses are addressed to Christians, Christ followers, but it was first written to a church in the city of Rome. It was a letter that was sent to a literal address. Someone got this. That's why the name of the book is Romans. Many of the books in the New Testament have the names of the cities of the early churches. It was written to specific churches, not just Christians and individuals at large. So that's how you make a contribution as you become a church member. The third question is, well, what's the mission? Here's the mission. Become a world changer. Well, I thought we were supposed to think of ourselves soberly. Do any of you feel like you could change the world? Yeah, that's a big job. Every team has a mission. You know, for the Dodgers, Astros, it's the same mission of every major league team as the season starts. That's win the World Series. Anything less than that is the mission's not accomplished. For the church, the mission is to change the world. Now, not take over the world by force, but plant seeds of God's grace that have the power to change the world. And the world needs changing. For all of the advances currently in science and technology, which is great, if you just scratch a little bit below the surface, you'll find evidence that all is not well in this world. I mean, just look at the rise in global and personal conflict. Look at the, the drop in emotional health. I could go on and on. All of this points to a much deeper problem than any form of government or any other organization could ever address. This is what the church was designed to address. In Acts chapter 17, we read this about a few Christians. Verse 6, it says, These men 
who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Wow. Who, who were these superheroes? Who were these amazing individuals? Well, it's just two that it's referring to in this verse. You can read before and after, and I encourage you to do that. The two it's mentioning is Paul and Silas. We know a lot about Paul because he started a lot of the churches and wrote a lot of the letters that make up the New Testament. Now, Silas, he shows up kind of like a little blip for a while, and then boop, nobody knows what happened to him. So these two men are part of the ones that have changed the world, turned the world upside down. What did they do? I mean, this is the days of Caesar. How, how, do, you, how do you address the Roman Empire and its legions and all of the corruption that was going on at this period of time? Just two men, a handful of men. Well, these two men had been part of starting just a handful of small churches. And they were visiting one of these churches in the city of Thessalonica, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And this is when the city officials saw them and made this statement about them. No, 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 no. These are the men that are turning the world upside down. We don't want anything to do with that. We want our city the way it is. You see, the world does need to be changed. And in a sense, it needs to be turned upside down, which would put it, what, right side up. Now, we'd love to be able to change it. Wouldn't you love to be able to change it? You know, as you, as you watch the news, as you move through your week, don't you just get this sense that oh, it's a juggernaut? Nothing's ever going to change for the better, really. What, what could I ever do? You see, God's plan to change the world is, is not through uniquely, amazingly gifted individuals but through commonly gifted individuals like you and me who follow Christ personally and then band together to be his body and do what he wants done in a specific place in a specific time. Now, honestly, it's easy to look at the church and not see this. I mean, did any of you walk in this morning and say, all right, I'm getting to go to the, the World Changer organization? No, we, you just don't see this. Honestly, by my junior year in college, I had become pretty disillusioned by the church. Now, I was very convinced about the truth of the Bible. I was very convinced about all of the evidence about who Christ was. I'd spent the previous two years personally doing a lot of reading and a lot of research and thinking to, to nail down what is true. Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really who he claimed to be? Because... I don't want to waste any time on this stuff if it's not true. I'm not, I'm not looking for something to make me feel better about myself that's not true. And so I nailed that down. But then when I started attending church or continued to attend church, I would just see things that were like, ugh, not impressive. And then I came across the places in the New Testament where the church is referred to not only as the body of Christ, but also as the bride of Christ. It refers to the love that Jesus has for his church. It's the love a husband has for his bride. Now, I wasn't married at the time, but I knew enough about marriage to know that if you're critical about a man's wife, you're going to have a problem with the man. Right? If someone walks up to you guys who are married and has something critical to say about your wife, there's going to be a problem. 
right? I knew this. And so what that meant was that Jesus was not pleased as I criticized and put down this church and that church, and I can't believe they do this, and what's wrong with them over here? Why don't they do this? He was not pleased. And I had a strong thought come into my mind at that moment. It wasn't audible, but a very strong thought, and here's the thought. Stop criticizing and start helping. So I did. And as I began to help and be a part, it didn't take long for me to learn it is a lot easier to criticize something than it is to build something. And that's just the way it is in life. You, know, you, you can criticize and have all, you can sound brilliant, but then you get in the position of actually building and doing it. All right, smarty pants, let's see how you do. That's hard. And so I discovered that I didn't know much. So I started asking God to help me find a church where I could learn from some people who knew more about how to build a church that pleases God than I knew. And I prayed for two years on this. Not every day, but a lot of days. And at the end of two years, I heard about a church in Fort Worth, Texas, led by um, Harold Bullock, who was pastoring that church. At that time, the church was, you know, 60, 70 people. Pretty small. And so I decided, it intrigued me enough, I decided I'm going to go visit and check this church out. So I did that. Spent two weeks there. And after two weeks, I decided this is the answer to my prayer. I was single at the time, packed up everything I owned in one of those little Honda Civics, you know, the early versions that were like go-karts. <laughs> and I moved. I moved to Fort Worth, became part of the church. Didn't have a job, found a job later. The name of the church, interestingly enough, was Hope. I spent eight years at Hope. I was deeply impacted by Harold and the people of that church. I learned a ton. And I wasn't the only one that was impacted by that church. Over time, 87 other churches and college ministries have been started out of that church. In 1990, my wife and I and our two kids, I met my wife there. Our two kids were born there. We moved here to Huntington Beach to pastor this church that had been started from someone who'd came out of Hope. And I made the mistake in my first six years here, 1990 through 1996, of thinking that I, I knew enough. I mean, I'd spent eight years getting trained. So I did pretty much my own thing. And I suffered because of my independence. And this church suffered because of my independence. And finally, I humbled myself. And I began asking for help again from Harold and some of the other pastors that had been trained like me in that church. And my wife was grateful. <laughs> the church was grateful. And honestly, I've been pretty slow to learn that not only do we as individuals need to be part of a church, but that we as individual churches need to be part of other churches. You see, I was raised in this culture, just like you are, which means I'm highly individualistic. That's part of what this culture is. You know, the way culture works is it works like pickle juice. I don't know if you've ever pickled cucumbers. But you put a cucumber in the brine, you let it sit, you heat it up, put some pressure on it. The next time you pull that cucumber out, it's not a cucumber. It's a pickle. It's taken on the flavoring of the brine. It's been oozed into all the pores. That's the way we are. We make a commitment to Christ, and we decide to follow Him, but 
what we ooze and what we taste like and what we do and what we value is pretty much what our culture is. We've been pickled. And so when we decide to become a Christian, what has to happen over time is at a very specific level, the things that our culture values needs to be changed into the things that God says, this is what's really important. Paul and Silas were visiting churches and the network of churches that they had started. You see, a church is an alternative culture. Now, it's a small impact compared to the size of time you spend in the culture, but it's a chance for us to begin to be depickled, to begin to change into the things that please God. But it takes time. And it takes more than one person working on this. It takes more than one church working on this to turn the world upside down. So a few years ago, we decided to put a name on this informal network of churches that came out of Hope. And we, were calling, we called it and are calling it the 17-6 Network because of Acts 17.6. We are asking that God would allow us over the generations to have the kind of influence in this world that would turn the world upside down, which means right side up. I wanted to introduce you to uh, Harold Bullock, who is the man I refer to, the pastor at Hope Church, who started Hope and um, is now 70 years old. And so we asked him to do uh, a video just of introduction to uh, the churches that are doing this series together here in Southern California. And so I want to show you this video. It's about three minutes long of Harold, and then um, I'll, I'll come back up. So let's take a look at this. When I was a young man in 1970, I landed at the University of Southern California to work on my PhD in chemistry. Uh, my direction was to do the chemistry and make money. I began to learn how to walk with God while I was at USC. And as a result, toward the end of the year, the Lord told me I was going into the ministry, which I had not planned on. And it was very clear. So my direction shifted. I married a lady that I had met in California, and we began our home. And for several years, did student ministry with the Los Angeles Association of Churches, starting student ministries around the eastern L.A. region. Then the Lord directed to Fort Worth to finish up graduate school in theology. So my wife and I moved to Fort Worth, intending to get back to California. We finished up seminary, and then the direction came that we're to remain in Fort Worth, though the call of the surf was strong. We began a church here. I, I had a lot of experience, had gone behind the start, a lot of learning. And we began a church to intentionally try to reach the part of the county that did not go to church, and also to help people grow and really learn to value and love the things of the kingdom of God. Over time, we hoped to produce men and women who would go out to plant churches other places. And a group grew up to team with us here in Fort Worth to make that happen. And over time, it really has happened. Uh, a large number of churches have been started. And as time has gone on, some of the men have pulled together, banded together as a team to make things happen. You know, the work of God takes teams. It takes two things, teams and time. It also takes money. But 
it takes a team. God raises up leaders who are unique, but around each one of them will gather a team, and those teams pull together, pool their resources, and because of the mutual strengths, they produce impact. So it's been fun to see the 17.6 network grow, uh, develop, and begin producing impact. Teams that last through time make wide impacts. Many times Americans think of the next few months or maybe the next year or two or maybe even three or four years. But in the kingdom of God, things last through generations. Teams that have long-term vision and are willing to put their shoulders together to push for the right things in the long term, they make lasting impacts. I would like to encourage you as you pull together, team. Don't try to do it all as an individual team. It requires a group of people. This is what the body of Christ is about. Team. And then team through time. Work together. Things go slow in ministry. Things go slow in building. But what is built lasts. So I want to encourage you. I challenge you. Make your life count. Blend your lives together. Go shoulder to shoulder. Team together and make the things dear to the heart of God come alive around you. Team, and team through time. So in this Teaming Together series, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to team together. And to help you see the larger network of churches that we're a part of, four of us pastors uh, here in Southern California are going to go on the road. We're going to be speaking at each other's churches and so here's a picture of the four of us that um, decided to get together back in April to, to plan this. We met at the offices of Orange Crest Community Church in Riverside. Um, and um, the next person to speak here at Seabreeze next Sunday is Josh De La Rosa. He's the individual on the right who's the pastor there at Orange Crest Community Church. I've known Josh for about 16 years. Back in 2008, almost 10 years ago, Josh led a team to start Orange Crest Community Church in Riverside. And Josh has been a tremendous example to me of faith and of teachability. Again and again, I've seen Josh just kind of take a deep breath and move forward to do something really hard that God is clearly wanting him and his team to do and trusting that God's going to come through somehow in the end. And then I've always seen him continue to seek to learn and to grow. Uh, I meet many pastors who are not part of any team, and it's really hard for them to keep moving forward without a team. Uh, this is a team that I'm a part of as pastors, and we're a part of as churches. And then the next Sunday on, on November 12th, Randy Lanthrop will be here. Randy is uh, the guy back um, in the middle. He's my age. Randy and I have been friends for 35 years. Uh, we attended the same grad school together. We're trained together at Hope uh, under Harold Bullock. Randy started Church in the Valley in Diamond Bar about 30 years ago, and he is currently serving as the director of the 17.6 Network of Churches. Randy's been a tremendous friend, help, and encouragement to me over the years. God often has used Randy to say exactly either the word of encouragement or the word of challenge that I've really needed at a key point of decision in my life. And then uh, three Sundays from now, November 19th, Alex Barrett will be speaking. Alex is in the foreground there. Alex is the pastor of Church in the Valley in Alhambra. So Church in the Valley has two campuses, Diamond Bar, the main one, and then Alhambra. Alex is pastoring there right now, but he this next year is going to be moving to Fontana, uh, next year to launch a new church in August. A lot of building going on in that area, and so we're wanting to start a new church there. 
I've known Alex for about 14 years. He is a gifted uh, communicator. And honestly, I can't wait for you guys uh, to meet these friends of mine, these fellow pastors. One of the ways that we have teamed together as a network of churches is in developing training programs, training programs uh, like North Star or Horizon. Uh, you may, may or may not have heard of these programs. There's about 70 individuals right now at Seabreeze who are uh, going through these training opportunities. None of us could have created anything as amazing as these training opportunities on our own. It really takes a team, uh, more than the four of us, to, to pull this together. Uh, every month, the four of us pastors here in Southern California, we gather to do training for leaders in our churches that are either already on staff or that are moving towards a full-time staff position somewhere. And the training is called the Antioch Project. And Antioch is the city where the first leaders of the church were sent out. And our hope is that we would, over time, begin to train leaders who set cultures in churches that really would begin to turn uh, the world upside down. And so our focus is to create these kind of churches, and our prayer is that we might have an impact, not just for the next 10 years, but maybe for hundreds of years because of this. Now, the reason Romans 12.3 warns us to not think of ourselves more highly than we do is because that's our tendency. We tend to do that. We easily have the attitude. You know, we don't need anyone else. We can do it on our own. But God's created us to be a part, not do everything on our own. He's not created us to single-handedly do the impossible. And he doesn't want us to do what's common now, and that is just, well, let's just let the world sink while we scavenge as much as we can off of it before it all goes under. That's not our purpose here. So I invite you to come back the next three Sundays uh, to hear from my friends, learn more about uh, the larger network of churches that we're a part of. And I just have to tell you, there is nothing, there's nothing like teaming together in the work of God. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, your offer of grace that we so desperately need and for giving us, many of us, the faith to see it. I thank you for those who are going to be baptized here in a few moments as a public statement of their acceptance of your grace by faith. And I pray that you'd help us to, to team together now as your people to accomplish what we couldn't ever accomplish on our own. We just thank you for the privilege of, of being a part of what you're doing in this world. And we ask for your help. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.